1: Hey, I'm glad you could join us today. I'm going to make it worth your while too. I have thought-provoking content, none of which you have to agree with. By the way, I'm just—I try to find what uh, will help me better understand the world, better understand where I can use my influence as wisely as possible, and you know, I go from there. I share it with you in the hopes that you will take it, and whether you agree with it or not, use this information to enlarge your perspective. At the very least, even if you disagree, even if you think, you know what, I can't really buy into that, that's okay. You know, the earth isn't going to tip off its axis and fall into the sun just because we don't see eye to eye on something. But hopefully, knock on wood, the idea here is that uh, there are some things that are worth standing for. There are some things that are worth being vulnerable, sticking your neck out, and maybe even marching out of step with the rest of the crowd. So that's the kind of stuff I try to talk about, uh, try to make sense of what's going on around us. And I don't have to tell you, it's, it's crazy times, right? The last, the last couple of years, okay, if you, were to, if you were to just magically transport yourself back in time, so we'd be going back to what, June 3rd, uh, 2019. And if you were to try to explain some of the things that we are facing today to a person just two years ago, I'm betting that most people would look at you with uh, not only a sense of incredulity, but they would also be like, you're nuts. Are you on your meds? Are you getting the help that you need? I mean, they they would think that uh, you were making it up. Everybody's going to be masked. Everybody's going to be in fear of catching a disease, which 99% of the people, you know, who get it, survive. We're going to see, you know, incredible shifts in our, our culture. We're going to see... Uh, you know the the fossil fuel industry being driven into the ground we're going to see everything become far more expensive and i'm trying to keep this as apolitical as possible but you know it's it, politically there's there's a lot of crazy stuff going on as well my goal is to contribute to your understanding without bringing more anger or more fear to the the situation so with that in mind welcome our program is brought to you each uh, weekday 2 hours a day brought to you by <clears throat> great sponsors like hslamo.com also uh, pure-light.com some truly amazing little light bulbs if you if you haven't checked out their website I would encourage you to do so you could spend a 1000 bucks on an air purifier or you could get uh, these light bulbs for far far less that do the same work fascinating stuff really also monticello college org and by the way put a put a little pin in this one uh, dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College will be joining me tomorrow on the program we're going to talk about uh, what's called the new economy I don't know if you've noticed but uh, you know a lot of things have changed in the last year a lot of people working from home jobs being eliminated some people don't want to go back to work because it's just easier to collect the government checks and so forth but uh, there, there's, a, there's a very productive way to approach this, and Shannon's got the lowdown. He'll be joining me tomorrow, and I, I hope that uh, you'll find the time to, to listen to that episode. So, to begin today, I want to note that uh, you know being informed these days means we have to walk a fine line between useful information and fearful propaganda. Now, having said that, <clears throat> there are a lot of us wondering as we look around, why are prices climbing so noticeably? And you'll see this on a lot of the basic goods that you're you're buying, right? If you've been grocery shopping, you'll see, wow, that's, that's a lot more expensive. Anybody who's bought lumber in the last few weeks has experienced sticker shock. But holy cow, it's going to all kinds of things. I mean, there were shortages on, uh, uh, what are they called? Uh, semiconductors, you know, computer chips. It's making things scarce. That's making things more expensive. Rental cars. I don't know the reason behind this. I want to do some more looking into it, but if you are trying to find a rental car for somewhere this summer, ooh, man, I hope you I hope you have a chair to sink into when you see how much it'll cost you to rent one. You also starting to see that uh, um some of the different uh, merchandisers out there are are they they know people are starting to get a little bit hey, you know this is costing a lot of money. So instead of raising the price, which they have to do because they're they're lacking raw materials or the cost of replacing raw materials from which they make their products, you know, has gone up. Instead, they're shrinking the portions. So I, I what's the phrase I saw was it shrinkflation anyways. Yeah, smaller portions, same price. Hey, at least you're not paying more. Well, you are. You're just you know getting a smaller <laughs> a smaller amount of content than you would get for the same price. But Why is this incredible increase in in prices taking place? Peter Jacobson is an economist and has a very informative, apolitical, nonpartisan, and I think concise take on why inflation is at a 12-year high. This is an article published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. If, uh, If you're interested in staying on top of stuff like this, can't recommend subscribing to their email strongly enough. They have a brilliant staff of writers and analysts and economists who look at this issue, again, not from partisan sides or not, you know, stumping for the Republicans or stumping for the Democrats. It's not red versus blue gymnastics. This is just, uh, why are these things happening? And in this case, if you're wondering why is inflation at a 12-year high, well, Peter Jacobson says it's all about the money. Here's Here's how he explained it. This article was actually published a couple of weeks ago, May 13th. he talks about how, at that time, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, or BLS, released numbers indicating that the average price level of consumer goods has risen 4.2% since this time last year. Now, that's the highest rate since 2008. In other words, the average consumer making the same salary this year has taken a pay cut when you consider what their paycheck will actually buy. Now, how does the Bureau of Labor Statistics know this? Well... One way that uh, the BLS keeps track of inflation is by using the Consumer Price Index, or CPI. The CPI uses some of the common goods urban consumers buy, and they keep track of the prices of these goods each year. So a CPI growth of 4.2% means this basket of goods that the average urban consumer buys has gotten 4.2% more expensive. This is what economists call measure inflation. Now, the consumer price index by itself is not a perfect measure of inflation, nor could any measure be. But Peter Jacobson says it provides some kind of benchmark to compare how much prices are changing over time. And that leads us to the question, okay, what's happening to our money? Why is inflation increasing now? And here's his explanation. He says it's all about the money. Imagine tomorrow that suddenly all U.S. money becomes 10 times larger $10 $10 bills become $100 bills. Bank accounts with $10,000 turn into accounts with 100000 The four quarters in your cup holder transform into a $10 bill. And that might sound nice at first, but he says, consider what happens next. If prices stay the same, well, suddenly people rush out to buy new things. Suddenly a student with a $7,000 student loan can buy a Porsche. Someone can afford a down payment on a house who was months away before. A kid with generous allowance can go buy a flat-screen television. But now the problems appear. All cars for sale are being driven off the lot. TV shelves are empty. House offers pour in only minutes after listing. By the way, that's happening right now. So there is more money, but the exact same amount of goods exist. And with so many customers demanding new goods, sellers have 10 customers fighting over one product. So what happens? The price is bid up. In fact, prices in this world will make, on average, the same change as bank accounts. One dollar candy bars become ten dollars. Average quality TVs cost thousands of dollars. And the $100,000 two-bedroom home in Kansas becomes a million-dollar purchase. So remember this, if nothing else. If more dollars chase the exact same goods, prices will rise. Now, although this example is very simplified, he says the general idea holds in the real world. Unfortunately, not everyone has gotten 10 times more money, but new money has definitely been introduced into the economy. And the quantity of money measured as M2 by the Federal Reserve has increased, are you sitting down, more than 32.9% since January of 2020. That means nearly a quarter of the money in circulation has been created since January of 2020. And he has a very handy graph here from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis showing that a change like this is unprecedented in history. You really have to see the graphic in order to appreciate how this uh, newly printed money has, has been introduced into the economy. And boy, it's a nice steady climb for a while, nice and slow, and then boom, it just goes skyward. Now we're going to come back to this in a few moments. We've got to take a quick break, but uh, wow. If you're wondering, why is it that my dollars are buying less? This is not the time to panic, but it's certainly a time to pay attention and not be asleep at the wheel. So, we'll come back to talk a little bit more about why inflation's at a 12-year high. Might even discuss a few options. What can you do to hedge against inflation? I think that's a question on a lot of people's minds. I know I'm thinking about it. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Thanks again for being part of
1: our growing audience of wrong thinkers. People willing to challenge the narrative. Willing to question the official version of what's happening. To know for themselves what uh, is actually going on and better still, what they can do about it. I'm sharing an article here from Peter Jacobson. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education, at least their website, fee.org. Why inflation is at a 12-year high. And yes, there is a link included to this article in my daily show notes, which I publish at the Brian Hyde show.com. So if you're looking for this particular article, you'll be looking for the show notes for June 3rd, 2021. So this newly printed money, says Peter Jacobson, helps fund the slew of trillion-dollar coronavirus spending, which benefited massive corporations. You do remember this, right? Out of the trillions being spent, it was a relatively small portion that actually showed up, like, in in your bank account or my bank account. here you go. Here's a little stimulus to kind of get you through the tough times. But uh, comparatively, the connected, the politically connected corporations, wow, did they rake it in. And Peter Jacobson says it's also an attempt to satisfy consumers' demand to hold money so they'll be comfortable spending again. And spending they are. So as lockdowns end and finally allow consumers to return to normal economic activity, all this new money starts to move through the economy more quickly. Banks have more money to lend out. People are building new homes. As more homes are built, the demand for wood increases. As the demand for wood increases, the price of wood goes up. Sound familiar? Now, although the new money won't hit all markets at the same time, and it may take some time for demand to return to pre-lockdown levels, the inflation numbers indicate this process has begun. And he says in order for inflation to slow down, either spending would have to slow down or the government would have to lower the money supply. Now, this leads us to the question, is that bad? Is it that bad? Because he says none of this means hyperinflation is coming tomorrow or ever. It could be a blip caused by a low CPI benchmark. But... Given all the new money floating around, he says it shouldn't surprise anyone if this rate of inflation were to persist or increase. Now, interestingly, the Federal Reserve members aren't worried. In fact, they claim not to be considering contractionary monetary policy. In other words, making it harder to borrow money until inflation is this level for some time. In fact, he says many economists argue inflation would need to be much higher to be worth worrying about. But it doesn't have to be hyperinflation to be harmful to many because inflation's effects are not equal. Peter Jacobson says after a year of lockdowns leading to job losses and pay cuts, many Americans aren't in a position to pay 4.2% higher prices. It's easy for someone with a comfortable job or a nest egg to scoff at these price increases. But when you look at the working class and poor Americans, those folks are feeling the difference. And at a time when Americans work to rebuild their savings to protect their families from future uncertainty, he asks, is it wise to ignore a policy that slowly eats away at their savings while they scramble to find new coupons for groceries or consider taking a much longer public transit route to save on gas? I mean, those struggles are worth consideration. So, will inflation rise? Will it fall? Peter Jacobson says nobody can say for sure. But we can't say for sure that inflation doesn't need to be in the double digits to hurt. And this leads me to, to pose... A rhetorical question, but I'm I'm curious nonetheless. Do you find yourself cutting some corners here or tightening your belt in a few ways that you didn't before? I think the concern I have is I don't want to wake up one day <clears throat> and realize that the money I have in the bank, paltry as it may be, is essentially worthless or too little to, to do anything with. And so there's a part of me, and it's, this is the part that I have to, you know, fight back the panic. I have to, whoa, 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 settle down. Don't don't get scared. But there's a part of me that thinks, well, maybe I need to convert it into some kind of tangible assets. Something that holds value. Things that people need. And that could take any number of forms. I mean, you know, food storage is one thing. Seeds, tools, you know, commodities would just be another way of putting it. But then you run into a problem. And this is something that I have... Yeah, become very intimately acquainted with in the last few weeks, and that is, that amounts to more stuff. I mean, where, where do you store all of this? Where where do you keep it? I mean, some people go for precious metals. A lot of people are dipping into cryptocurrency, not because they see, you know, tremendous value and, oh, I, I can't hold cryptocurrency in my hand, <clears throat> but they want to diversify whatever they're doing to make sure that they're not hanging out to dry as every dollar in their savings account shrinks in its purchasing power. So, no, I don't have a pat answer for you as far as, you know, here's what you need to do and do it right now in order to uh, protect your life savings. But I do think that it's the kind of thing that uh, you you can't wish away. This is one of those times where burying your head or otherwise just pretending like, no, 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 that's, it's not happening, this is not real. It's not going to work. And I'm not telling you that uh, you got to do something now, go buy gold, go buy silver, go buy bullets, whatever it may be. I'm just saying, be aware. And, and especially, I think we're going to have to be aware, the people who are on fixed incomes, the retirees, I think of my mom, she's an octogenarian, she's uh, she's on a very fixed income. She's also a very frugal person. Oh, well, she'll pinch a penny till it screams, but this is scary because... She doesn't have a lot of alternate sources of income to offset the decrease in purchasing power for what she has, you know, in terms of her Social Security benefits, the pension that comes to her and that sort of stuff. She can't, uh, she can't go out and just, well, I'll just get another job. Even being a Walmart door greeter, not an option. And she's representative of a lot of people that uh, are finding themselves in that situation. So I'm not trying to put a burden on you. I'm just telling you, if we're going to be decent people, we should probably be aware of this kind of thing going on and and uh, hopefully be in a position to help. I don't know what the future holds, but I think it's been a while since we've had a real true blue economic correction. And I'm using that word rather than collapse because... Um, I, collapse is possible. It's happened. We've seen it in other countries. What was going on in Greece and Cyprus and other, other nations in, in Europe, you know, about 10 years ago? What's happened in Zimbabwe? What happened in Argentina? Those are, there, those are some legit economic collapses. I don't know if that's where we're headed. But clearly, the path we're on right now is not one that's sustainable. And that means we've got to be thinking ahead. What could I do? If groceries are becoming super expensive, is there a way that I can provide more for, for my own needs, produce more of my own food? I mean, this is this is a tough call for people, especially within urban settings. You know, where planting a garden isn't as easy as, well, we'll go take what uh, was a portion of the back lawn and turn that into gardening. You know, it's you can't do that when you live in an apartment building. There's still a lot of options. I, if I could do this one thing, though, I will recommend... Um, Daisy Luther is is one of the, the best prepper voices out there. And you can find a great archive of all of her writings at lewrockwell.com, L-E-W-rockwell.com. Daisy Luther, that's the name you're going to want to pull up. You can just do a quick search feature there at Lew Rockwell and and pull up her name. And she has got so many great, very workable ideas. And she's not talking to you from some ivory tower where she sits and, you know, lights her cigars with $100 bills. She's a very down-to-earth person. She she, practices what she preaches, but she's also, you know, she's an organic prepper. That's that's the moniker she goes by, the organic prepper. And uh, she is just very good at putting into practice what she recommends. So if you want to prepare for hard times on nickels and dimes, that's one of the resources I would say you should check out. And she's very positive about this. I mean, there's something that comes, uh, there's a peace of mind that that comes along with that sense of self-sufficiency. This is not, you know, survivalist thinking, we just hunker down in the bunker, gripping your rifle tightly, and, you know, praying that the next threat doesn't approach. There's always going to be risk, and, you know, there's natural disasters and things we haven't even considered that we may be facing, but when you got a little bit of uh, self-reliance to fall back on, You can sleep a lot better at night knowing, hey, I have options. It's also a good way to hang on to your freedom. So there's something else to consider.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know what one of the
1: hardest things in the world to do is? I mean, this is superhuman effort required to resist saying, told you so, <laughs> when, when you were right, and someone was was very very clearly wrong, especially if it was if they publicly called you out or if they otherwise held you up as well. You're just some kind of a weird kook or conspiracy theorist. You don't know what you're talking about. And then the facts bear out that uh, no, actually, you did know what you were talking about, and you were right. It's hard not to say, "Told you so," and you know, rub their nose in it. But I bring this up because uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci's recently released emails. And by the way, these weren't leaked. I hear people say, you know, CNN's, well, these leaked emails, as if, you know, somebody went in and ferreted out a bunch of private information. These were emails obtained under the Freedom of Information Act, meaning that they are matters of public record, they are in the interest of transparency in government, and Dr. Fauci is a part of government. In fact, I believe he is the highest paid government official in the United States government. Not a bad gig. But his recently released emails... Are proving that skeptics like Senator Rand Paul were right to question him when it came to the narrative about official pronouncements pertaining to COVID-19. I mean, he questioned him on a number of things about masks. He questioned him about, uh, you know, funding. <clears throat> I forget what the the name of the testing is in Wuhan. Basically, the the Wuhan uh, virus laboratory was testing to see if this particular virus, coronavirus. Could be made, uh, could be altered or otherwise modified to make it more transmittable from bats to humans. Kind of a curious thing, don't you think? And Dr. Fauci, of course, uh, you know, played it off as, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I never said that. I never did this. And when Rand Paul accused him, you know, the, the double masks you're wearing that you're telling people to wear, this is just theater. You're vaccinated. Everybody in this room is vaccinated. Why are you still wearing two masks? You know, anyway, not to to drag this into the political drama, but the bottom line is there were a lot of official pronouncements. The mass media pretty much towed the line. And that's what I want to talk about is the fact that there was an official narrative which upheld whatever Dr. Fauci says, that is what is right. Well, it turns out that... uh, on some of these things, in fact, on a number of these things, Dr. Fauci was as full of it as a Christmas goose. That's not good. That's deception, and this is this is one of the things that, um, you know, I I know it's painful to consider, but especially during a time of crisis, you know, I want to I want to know that I can count on these people who are in charge to tell me the truth. Well, guess what? At least one of them, Dr. Fauci, has been. Uh, fudging the facts. He's been playing you and me for fools. So this is a very powerful illustration of why, as Caitlin Johnstone puts it, a truly free society would have no official narratives. And I've I've talked about this before, the idea of, you know, if someone says, this is the official reality and you have to hold to it, you've got a problem. If someone needs to declare this reality or that reality to be the official reality, yeah, they're, they're not trying to help you. They're trying to silence dissent. <clears throat> they're trying to keep people from asking questions that would be inconvenient or perhaps damaging to those in power. Caitlin Johnstone says many of Anthony Fauci's emails during the U.S. COVID-19 outbreak last year have been obtained via Freedom of Information Act and published by BuzzFeed News and The Washington Post. Now, she says, depending on what ideological echo chamber you inhabit, you may have heard that they are completely innocuous. CNN, I noticed you were just talking about, he's so polite and so nice to everybody he responds to. (laughs) Or you may have heard that they are uh, historically damning. But she says, the ones that are eliciting the most controversy right now include a scientist telling Fauci that the virus could potentially look engineered And a zoologist linked to both the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the World Health Organization's COVID investigation are thanking Fauci in these emails for supporting the natural origin theory over the lab leak theory. Now, her point is this will all play into the reinvigorated controversy surrounding the origins of the virus, which will ultimately lead nowhere in her opinion. She says, as Jonathan Cook argues in a thoughtful new article on the overnight pivot in the political and media class from attacking anyone who questioned whether the virus transferred to humans via a Wuhan wet market as a deranged racist conspiracy theorist to acknowledging that a lab leak could be possible due to scientific arguments gaining traction and forcing establishment narrative managers to engage in damage control. She says, contradicting right-wing maddow claims that this adamant opposition to the lab leak theory proves the media and the Democratic Party are in Xi Jinping's pocket, Cook argues that the Western Empire has been protecting not China, but themselves. She says, the U.S. scientific establishment and the World Health Organization are both reportedly tied to controversial gain-of-function research practices in the Wuhan lab just before the COVID outbreak, which, according to Cook, means... We can expect the imperial narrative managers to lead us around on a merry chase for the truth without ever getting too close to it for fear of exposing the role that Western power structures may have had in the whole mess. Now, she says, I've been staying abreast of all the many various theories, and I still remain unsure of where COVID came from. She says, I've remained happily agnostic about many aspects of this story from the beginning. Much to the chagrin of regular readers who've wanted my voice to offer certainty and solidity on the matter. But she says, I do think it's very revealing how instantaneously a story switched from unutterable conspiracy theory to mainstream orthodoxy. Just because those who are responsible for overseeing the official narratives of the U.S. centralized empire deemed it so. In fact, she says, the same exact thing has happened with UFOs, but to an even greater extent. A few short years ago, publicly saying that UFOs are real and that they may be piloted by extraterrestrial intelligence was a surefire way to get yourself laughed out of the building and dismissed as a nut job. But now the U.S. military is flat out saying it. And it's in the news every day. One minute it was childish nonsense, the next it's an official narrative. Her point here is the fact that there can be a drastic shift from something no pundit or politician may say is something they're encouraged to talk about all the time, all at once, at the drop of a hat, says so much about what the political and media class is and how it works in our society. In fact, it says a lot about how utterly uninterested in truth and facts it is, how arbitrary its dictates are, how completely made up its ongoing story of the world is. It just says what's convenient for the powerful, and when that's not convenient anymore, it switches to something else. Caitlin Johnstone says in a truly free society, there would be no official narratives. There wouldn't be any monolithic authority construct deciding what's true and marginalizing, censoring, and smearing anyone who said something different. There'd just be raw information and a bunch of humans arguing their opinion, and people would take all that and form their own beliefs. And that would just be accepted and allowed, again, in a free society. She says, think about what that might, like be for, might be like for just a moment if there were no official narratives. If everyone was just allowed to interpret reality for themselves without the supervision of any overseeing authority, would the sky fall? Would the world catch fire? Or would we find a way for that to be just fine? She says, you might argue that recent events show bad things can happen if there were no official narratives. People won't get vaccinated. People would distrust election results and raid the Capitol building. But she says, think about it. Why are people doing those things? It's because they distrust the official narratives they're being fed by the official narrative managers, who, as we've just discussed, don't have the best track record for truthfulness. They manufacture consent for any murderous agenda the U.S. war machine decides at once. They normalize corporate malfeasance and an oppressive, exploitative, ecocidal, omnicidal status quo And they just rewrite their own official narratives a second after they were screaming at people for trying to write their own. Now, that wouldn't be the case in a society where people weren't being bullied and shoved into untrustworthy narratives by untrustworthy institutions. Caitlin Johnstone says, if we are to transcend our self-destructive patterning as a species, that movement will necessarily include an end to having our minds manipulated by the propaganda machine of an oligarchic empire which feeds on murder, slavery, and environmental destruction. She says we're going to have to pry the lies we've been told since birth from our minds and begin building a healthy world, one where we collaborate with each other and with our ecosystem toward the common good and where we respect one another's mental sovereignty without any institutional mechanisms exerting control over any of us. She says it's entirely possible to have such a world, but in order to have it, We'll all at some point have to relinquish the inner tyrant inside of us which thinks it knows what thoughts everyone else should be thinking in their heads and seeks to impose control over them. Because that tyranny is the same mind virus which led to the rise of the official narrative management which holds all of us captive today. She says we can only ever be as free as we allow ourselves to be. Look, I don't line up with her on 100% of things, but I think she makes some really fine points. Definitely worth considering.
0: And yes, there's a link to the article in the show notes. This This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back
1: I am so glad that you're part of the audience today. And listen, if you find value in the information that I'm sharing or, you know, the observations that that I'm offering here, please consider subscribing to the podcast. It'll notify you every time a new episode drops. You can listen to it at your leisure. I try to break it up into nice, easily digestible segments and try to keep it free of as much fear and anger as possible. I know I speak with a certain degree of certainty, but I, I don't pretend to have all the answers. I never will. I'm just a guy who's trying to make sense of it all, and more importantly, trying to use whatever little influence I have as wisely as possible to help other people see the world around us. This is why I, I jokingly say as in the intro of my show, God gave me a gift. I shovel. I shovel very well. Well... Here I am, hopefully shoveling some truth and light in your direction. Let's talk about American greatness. I'm not talking about chest-beating, flag-waving, jets flying over, we're going to blow them all to kingdom come kind of greatness. I'm talking about one of the best examples of American greatness, which is founded our historical tradition of solving problems at the lowest possible level. You realize that was the norm. My son was asking me the other day about, uh, you know, how did we get to the point where everything is a government matter? Everything is a police matter. And that was my answer to him as we we got really good at outsourcing responsibility for solving problems. Every time something came up that annoyed us, "Eh, I'm going to run to government and get them to solve this for us. It's been a really bad deal, too, because it's invited government into areas of our lives where it really has no rightful place. And worse, it's conditioned us to think that uh, that's the only real solution. And if it's, you know, if it's not government doing something here, then it's just not a legitimate solution. Well, I came across an article. This is from Law and Liberty. Actually, it's lawliberty.org. It's a book review of a book called The Forgotten Gifts of, uh, I'm sorry. The book is called Civic Gifts, Voluntarism and the Making of the American Nation-State. It's from Elizabeth S. Clemens, is the author of the book. This book review is from Jacqueline Pfeffer Merrill and it's titled The Forgotten Gifts of American Volunteerism. And I'm just going to hit a few of the high points here, but I I share this with you not so much to mourn that, oh, this was the America that was. Uh, we've, we've definitely stepped away from a lot of those uh, norms and traditions and mores that helped make this a great country. But they're still very legitimate to principles and ideals, meaning we could we could live them if we want to. We just have to recognize, hey, that's worthwhile, and choose to live it. In this case, Jacqueline Pfeffer Merrill says, over the course of the pandemic, many were cheered by the myriad ways in which people rallied to help their fellow citizens. But she points out many also protested, hey, isn't this the government's job? Shouldn't the government supply PPE rather than relying on citizens to sew face masks? Or ensure that children didn't go hungry and feed and house frontline medical staff? She says, with much of this discussion shaped by the polarizing response to then President Donald Trump, it's helpful to be reminded that the debate about the respective roles of the government and the citizens in responding to the crisis goes back even before the country's founding. Elizabeth S. Clemens' Civic Gifts Volunteerism in the Making of the American Nation State supplies this history. Dr. Clemens, who is the William Rainey Harper Distinguished Service Professor of Sociology at the University of Chicago and a specialist in the political development of the United States, takes an episodic approach by studying crises from the Boston Tea Party through the Great Depression and World War II, and her focus is on benevolent or charitable associations which step in to meet welfare needs during crises. At issue is the proper balance between uh, uh, the proper balance rather among self reliance, voluntary associations, and government to provide for citizens' welfare. And Dr. Clemens sees an unexpected prevalence of charity and benevolence from both government and voluntary associations. She says the puzzle is to understand how charity and the gift became central elements in a purportedly liberal and individualistic political culture. And by the way, when she says liberal, I just I feel like I have to clarify because some people still get that knee-jerk reaction because they think in terms of conservative versus liberal. She's talking classical liberal. That's that's the, the mindset that the founding generation had. Classical liberals. Much more freedom oriented, focused on the rights of the individual, less upon collectivism. Yeah, there were some places where common interests would bring us together, but for the most part It was about protecting your rights, your individual natural rights. Okay, with that clarification in mind, in this case, uh, Jacqueline Pfeffer Merrill says, Conservative readers who believe widespread charity and a robust civil society are spontaneous components of a healthy liberal democracy may be less puzzled about how charity and individualism go hand in hand. This quibble aside, there is much to appreciate in this important history of voluntary associations and their relationship to government. Particularly noteworthy, she says, is Dr. Clemens' attention to the power of ideas to shape action, as evidenced by her frequent quotations from speeches, correspondence, and papers of the men and women who led or opposed various associations and benevolent initiatives. Dr. Clemens challenges what she sees as a too simple narrative of, Amer- of Americans as inveterate founders and joiners of associations, a narrative she attributes to a stylized summary of Alexis de Tocqueville's democracy in America. She presents a history of voluntary associations that's complicated and contested. In fact, she points out Tocqueville's own account of associations is more nuanced than is often supposed. Now, as Dr. Clemens explains, voluntary benevolent associations were essential to the very founding of the United States. When the British blockaded the Port of Boston in retaliation for the Boston Tea Party, communities throughout the colonies contributed sheep, cattle, barrels of rice, and occasional pipe of brandy to the Boston Committee on Donations to supply the Bostonians who were understood to be suffering for a nation or polity that had not yet been formally declared. But while support for the Boston Committee on Donations helped to write a story of peoplehood and paved the way to the founding, Dr. Clemens writes that this did not translate into unqualified support for voluntary associations among the founders and early civic leaders. Dr. Clemens notes Noah Webster's statement that voluntary associations were useful in pulling down bad governments, but dangerous to good government. Thomas Jefferson's view that permitting the spread of voluntary associations and corporations would threaten equality by allowing a small minority, a cabal, to exercise disproportionate influence over public life and George Washington's objections to the promiscuous mixing of, ben, of mutual benevolence and state national, and national-level uh, political didacticism. didacticism. you got to keep a dictionary on hand if you're going to read what the founders wrote. They they were uh, pretty, pretty well-read individuals. Now, of course, these same men also led voluntary associations. Webster, for example, founded the Connecticut Society for the Abolition of Slavery. Washington was the first president general of the Society of Cincinnati. But Dr. Clemens surprises readers who supposed early American leaders were unambiguously supportive of associations as civic institutions by describing their worry that associations could also be vehicles for factions. Parties, yeah. Voluntary associations had an important role, but not as organizations dispensing charity In place of government, Washington, for example, arranged for the charitable funds of the Society of Cincinnati to be turned over to and dispensed by state legislatures to avoid citizens' dependence on a private association. Now, they go through a number of different things here, and I'm going to have to skip ahead because I'm actually fast running out of time. But uh, despite being a major force in American civil life, from the Boston Committee on Donations through the first quarter of the 20th century, Popular benevolent associations are nearly absent today. Dr. Clemens notes by December 1917, 22% of the American population had made at least the basic contribution that signified membership in the organization to support the American effort in World War I. Today, Americans are so fragmented and polarized that no organization has the trust of so many. To be sure, Americans give more generously than ever. During 2020, giving rose 11%, and small donors whose gifts had fallen off in recent years contributed to that boost. Indeed, there may be reasons to favor smaller local associations over even a national association like the American Red Cross. But the fact is that it's difficult to imagine so many coming together to support a single organization, and this testifies to a lost sense that we can rally together to face national challenges. Dr. Clemens' book, completed shortly before the pandemic, Ends with a nostalgic hope that Americans could recover the possibility of mobilizing in a crisis through voluntary associations, acting as democratic citizens who insisted that government depended not only on popular consent, but popular contribution. And the events of the last 15 months have shown just how difficult it would be to realize that hope. Of course, I will have a link to this article in the show notes, which you will find at the It's a great article, worth your time. The book may also be worth your time. So consider taking a look at that and consider subscribing to the podcast and perhaps even becoming a regular monthly supporter of this program.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, whether you're a, wrong, a longtime wrong thinker or just wrong think curious, I'm glad you're a part of our audience today. I'm going to make it worth your while to stick around and consider some matters of great importance. At least uh, they could be of great importance. Ultimately, you are not required to agree with anything that I say as the host of this program. You're not required to agree with my guests or any of the essayists or columnists or uh, you know content providers that I point you towards but I will tell you, I do put some pretty serious thought into uh, the the material that I find. Uh, my number one goal here is not to get people riled up. I'm officially through the red meat throwing phase of my uh, broadcast career. It worked well, by the way. You can generate a very large, very loyal audience by throwing red meat. However, other than getting people riled up, I don't see a lot of value that comes from that. So I try to offer some... Uh, Truth and light, as I understand it, hopefully broader perspective on the things that are going on around us, but most importantly, I'm encouraging you to take ownership of your worldview, to be the kind of person who can stand up and say, look, I have looked at the facts or I've looked at this and researched it for myself, and you know, this is, this is what I think. You know, be open to new truth, but uh, don't be beholden to some official narrative or something that an official narrative manager is insisting. You have to believe this. Too many people have willingly surrendered their worldview to the control of people who don't have their best interests in mind, who don't want to keep them informed, but rather want to keep them in line. And there was a time when that would have sounded very conspiratorial. Oh, really, Brian? And exactly how is this big conspiracy of keeping people in line happening? You don't have to look far today to see it. In fact, let's let's start on on this uh, on this note. You know, where you stand politically doesn't matter nearly as much as whether you are thinking clearly and independently about what's taking place in in your world. And when someone else presumes to tell you what you're allowed to see or hear or read, or think, or question, well, that's a major red flag that you're being treated like a child who needs to be supervised. And an appropriate response to such actions of someone telling you, well, you can't think this, and you can't say that, and don't you dare share this, uh, here's what an appropriate response would look like. This is from Issues and Insights. It's their editorial board, and it's titled, Hey, Facebook, ban this. Their editorial says, last week we learned that Facebook had been banning posts suggesting that COVID-19 originated in a Chinese lab. We became aware only when Facebook announced that it would no longer ban such posts, raising the question of why it was doing so in the first place. It wasn't as though there was no possibility that a lab leak was responsible. There was an ongoing discussion of this, and then, over the weekend, we learned that Facebook apparently has plans to ban posts that might encourage what it calls vaccine hesitancy. What does that mean? Who knows? Facebook never reveals how it makes such decisions. Morgan Common, a former data center technician for Facebook, told Fox News, anything that questions the vaccine... Or the narrative regarding the vaccine, which is, you know, everyone should get the vaccine. The vaccine is good and you're not going to get most or you're not going to get many bad side effects. Anything outside that realm is basically considered under vaccine hesitancy by Facebook's algorithms. Now, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Morgan Comment, I believe, is the guy who stepped forward and went to uh, Project Veritas with insider information about how Facebook is doing this. And, of course, Facebook immediately blacklisted and banned the guy. Um, I saw that James O'Keefe from Project Veritas had uh, set up a, not GoFundMe, but something that actually doesn't, uh, isn't quite as political, you know, in terms of the donations. And I believe they had raised almost half a million dollars last time I checked to help this guy sustain his family and support his family for the foreseeable future. That makes me happy. That tells me people are actually not only paying attention, but they're willing to stand up for one another when someone takes one for the team, which it sounds like Morgan did. So back to the article here, back to the editorial. How does Facebook justify basically banning or or, uh, getting rid of any post that encourages what it calls vaccine hesitancy? How do they justify it? Well, it doesn't. See, in one section of its community standards document, Facebook flatly denies that it removes false news posts. It says, We do not remove false news from Facebook, but we significantly reduce its distribution by showing it lower in newsfeed. Now they say, We've run into Facebook's horrible false news attacks ourselves. One of our posts correctly stated that then candidate Joe Biden wanted to outlaw gas powered cars. That was based on Biden's own campaign promises. Facebook flagged the headline as false, not the editorial. The headline, based on a bogus fact check. Facebook readership of the editorial crashed as a result. And they say it happened again when Facebook moved to block distribution of an article we published on COVID-19 rates in the U.S., in which we noted how infection rates in Europe at the time were far higher than the U.S., Yet the U.S., or more particularly President Donald Trump, was being blamed for a massive failure to contain the disease. As with the Biden editorial, readership crashed as soon as Facebook slapped its partly false label on it. So Facebook has not only been removing COVID-19 stories it doesn't like, but posts regarding election fraud as well. That's according to ABC News. Starting today, we will reduce the distribution of all posts and newsfeeds from an individual's Facebook account account, rather, if they repeatedly share content that has been rated by one of our fact checking partners. We already reduce the single post reach in newsfeed if it has been debunked. Facebook announced. Whether false, whether it's false or misleading content about COVID nineteen and vaccines, climate change, elections, or other topics, we're making sure fewer people see misinformation on our apps. In other words, instead of learning its lesson from its coronavirus lab leak disaster, Facebook is doubling down on its censorship campaign. So Issues and Insights says, well, we've had enough. And we hope the following list of claims causes Facebook's algorithms and fact checkers to seize up. I want you to listen to this list. And again, I'm not saying you have to believe that this is all, you know, real. But just imagine, why would Facebook want to ban or at least limit people's exposure to anything that might raise questions about these areas? Okay, so these are some of the, these are some of the, uh, the issues, the claims that Facebook is trying to keep people from seeing. Things like all vaccines, including COVID vaccines, can have side effects. COVID lockdowns were a catastrophic waste. Mask mandates have been ineffective. BLM is a Marxist-led group. I'm sorry, my dog is having a meltdown in the background, but he'll just have to do it, I guess. Critical race theory is itself racist. How about this one? There are only two genders. Or Anthony Fauci has some serious skeletons in his closet. This one would definitely set off the uh, Facebook algorithm censors. Election fraud is real and happened in 2020. Biden wants to ban gasoline cars. How about this? Electric cars are dirty. Hamas is a terrorist group. Antifa is a terrorist group. The January 6th Capitol riot wasn't an armed insurrection. Recycling is a waste of time and money. Global warming science is not settled. Trust the science makes no sense. Government is not the answer to our problems. Or, Trump has been right about a lot of things. Now, the Issues and Insights editorial board says, if we're lucky... This will get banned on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube and every other social media platform except those that actually believe in free speech. And they said, we hope it gets flagged by the U.S. Postal Service for whatever it is the USPS is tracking for the feds. Look, again, I'm not telling you, you have to believe everything that they just put out there. But those are some pretty serious issues. And I think the bigger question is, why would someone not want you to be able to have access to robust discussion about them? Doesn't that seem just a little bit odd? This is too dangerous. You can't even consider such a thing. Either you choose what you will see, read, hear, think about or question, or somebody else will. There is no middle ground. It's like like being a little bit pregnant. It just ain't possible. You either are or you aren't. Either you are making those decisions or someone else is making them for you. See, I trust you to make the right decisions, to ask the right questions. If someone doesn't trust you to do those things, maybe you should be asking why that is and what their plans for you include.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to mention that our
1: program is brought to you by great sponsors like pure-light.com, org. By the way, uh, Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College will be joining me tomorrow on the program. We're going to be talking about the new economy. With all the stuff that's topsy-turvy and the ground shifting under our feet economically and, you know, rising prices and so forth, I think you're going to love his message because he's got a very uh, solid and hopeful message about uh, options you and I have that we may not have considered. Also want to thank uh, HSLAMO.com for being a sponsor of the show. Appreciate every one of these sponsors. I have links to every one of them, by the way, in the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com. If you're so inclined, go visit their website, learn a little bit more about them, maybe drop them a note of thank you and let them know their message is reaching your ears. So I'm not ashamed to tell you that I'm a huge fan of the Beverly Hillbillies, and I have been for a long time. Now, as a kid, you know, it was funny but uh, I didn't really understand all the levels of humor. Now, as an adult, I get a lot more out of watching that show, but the thing that has always impressed, impressed me about the Beverly Hillbillies was the fact that they had this incredible sense of common sense and just basic truthfulness about them. They may not have seen things exactly uh, as they were, but there was, a, there was a sincerity and truthfulness that there was no guile about what they were doing. They wouldn't tell you something just to, you know, to to blow sunshine up your skirt, so to speak. So I saw this article on intellectualtakeout.org. This is from Robert Weisberg. America's elites are terrified of hillbillies. And he makes some very interesting parallels here. And I think he actually, he he calls this correctly. It's that honesty and that willingness to, to not... Just be swayed by that need to be accepted or to appear sophisticated and cloak yourself in, you know, pseudo intellectual language to make you sound so smart. That terrifies the people who really want to control populations. Here's how Robert Weisberg puts it he says, Politics abounds with oddities, but perhaps none is greater. Than the elite's disproportionate reaction to the January 6th Capitol mayhem as opposed to their response to the largely black rioting following George Floyd's death. While the black rioting drew tens of thousands of participants, lasted months and was indisputably violent with billions in property damage, the so-called Trumpist occupation lasted only five hours and participants did not kill anyone or wantonly destroy property. So it's hard to imagine two more profoundly different events, and critically, the differences were visible to TV viewers. Why did the widespread, plain-to-see, Black Lives Matter violence during the COVID-19 epidemic receive a pass, even occasional praise, while January 6th is treated akin to Pearl Harbor? And the answer is actual behavior is irrelevant. Mr. Weisberg says the explanation, in my estimation, lies in who the protesters were, blacks versus hillbillies. Put bluntly, he says blacks can riot for months, loot stores by the hundreds, and otherwise run amok. Hillbillies, by contrast, need only arrive in their pickup trucks, assemble peacefully, express some patriotic cliches, and this inspires dread in the left. While elites largely turned a blind eye toward Black Lives Matter and their camp followers, even poo-pooing the widespread destruction of small businesses and the subsequent violent crime wave, they've depicted the January 6th event as an armed insurrection, and attempted coup d'etat, the worst attack on the capital since the British burned it down in the War of 1812, and a threat to our democracy, unrivaled since the Civil War, while describing the participants as domestic terrorists. Oh yeah, they've been pretty breathless about this one. Over the course of four months, as many as 26,000 troops were deployed to protect the Capitol through the threat, though the threat of imminent violence was minimal. That the House of Representatives recently voted for $1.9 billion to enhance Capitol security suggests that the January 6th incident was indeed truly terrifying to the D.C. elites. Now, Mr. Weisberg says at the core of this elitist fear of hillbillies, a.k.a. Po' White, Rednecks, or Trailer Park Trash, is the elite's realization that these denizens of rural American of America rural America rather enjoy an almost genetic immunity today, to today's race-based politically correct narrative? Yes, the Dukes of Hazard County folk may not be the brightest bulbs in the chandelier, or especially well informed politically. But when they hear mendacious anti-American lies, they may as well be rocket scientists. They admire America for what it is not according to some bizarre ideology cooked up in a faculty lounge. Unlike timid elected officials, these people are not afraid of expressing offensive views. Imagine, for example, if some well-paid race educator showed up at Adi Murphy High School in bucolic West Virginia to instruct students on their toxic white privilege. He would, of course, be expensively dressed and paid $5,000 for his efforts. He'd inform youngsters that slaves built America, that black crime is entirely due to systemic white racism, that payment of reparations is a moral obligation, and all the rest of the critical race theory religion. Now keep in mind that most of those privileged whites in West Virginia are dirt poor, have family who've died of drug overdoses, suffer from chronic alcoholism, and face long-term unemployment. Well, Mr. Uh, Race Educator would not receive a warm welcome. In fact, his audience would consist of patriotic Americans who refused to accept the blame foisted on them by critical race theory. And unlike over-socialized Ivy League students, they would express their hateful, in quotation mark, views face-to-face. No doubt the educator would report back that he has uncovered rampant white supremacy, a bastion of the KKK, and all the rest that terrifies the liberal elite. A more accurate assessment, of course, is that our race hustler has uncovered a nest of unbelievers happy to speak the unspeakable truth. Hillbillies refuse to be placated by the elite's permission to run wild and grab free stuff. No member of the white trash community will have their political grievances satisfied by looting farm and fleet or upsetting tables at a cracker barrel. The hillbilly community is not easily bought off with elite-supplied goodies such as overpaid jobs as professors of Appalachian Studies or campus directors of outreach dedicated to targeting underserved rural populations. Nor are they willing to sacrifice personal freedom and self-respect to qualify as affirmative action hires. Chuck Yeager would never have enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Forces if they lowered standards to fill diversity quotas. Here's the line that really, I thought, stood out. Participants in the January 6th event are dangerous because they are unbelievers. Let me elaborate on this a little bit. What are they unbelievers in? The goodness of democracy and freedom for all? Nope. They are unbelievers in the fraud and the narrative that is being forced on them by people who wish to rule them politically. That's what makes them dangerous, not the amount of... They didn't kill people. They didn't uh, do billions of dollars in damage. They just don't believe what the elites are telling them they have to believe. And that's why you're seeing very ambiguous terms like domestic extremists being thrown around to describe those with whom the U.S. government must prepare to go to war with. That is the new gravest threat the intelligence community, the political class, they are ginning up the excuses to go to war against people who cannot be bribed into drinking the fake racial grievance Kool-Aid at a time when being a good citizen means embracing falsehoods. So it's this honesty that truly does make them dangerous. I have a good friend who once upon a time, he was just joking. But uh, he, he, he scored a, a real smack to my ego when one day he, he was just teasing me, but he said, you are a gun-toting hillbilly. And I kind of took offense because I don't want to be seen as a hillbilly. But after reading this article from Robert Weisberg about why the elite are terrified of hillbillies, you know what? I think I'll accept that title. In fact, I think I'll wear it proudly.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey,
1: welcome back to the show. I'm just wondering, am I striking too strident a tone (laughs) for this hour of the show? You know, the only reason I ask is because I feel better after sharing articles like the last one I shared from Robert Weisberg about why the, why America's elites fear hillbillies. I, you know, if I feel better, like, wow, I got that off my chest. Woo. That was a relief. Uh, sometimes I worry that maybe that just comes off as, wow, he's really venting. Brian's on a tear today. Okay. We all need sometimes to, to just, you know, let go, <laughs> get it off our chest but I'm trying not to add more anger or more fear to a situation that's already pretty rife with a lot of uh, a lot of bad feelings. So I want to talk about something positive here for a moment. This is something I saw yesterday, caught my eye. It was a post on Facebook showing a picture of people sitting in a library talking. Now this is a quiet area, so I assume they are quietly talking. Nobody appears to be engaged in anything, uh, you know, particularly crazy. But this is a concept that I wish would catch on. In fact, I I actually want to see what I can do, maybe in my own community, to, uh, to make something like this happen. It says, in Denmark, there are libraries where you can borrow a person instead of a book to listen to their life story for 30 minutes. Now, the ultimate goal here is to fight prejudice. And so this is not, you know, I mean, I know it's pride month and therefore everybody's fighting prejudice, you know. Where's your rainbow? Where's the rainbow sticker? Why aren't you wearing it? Um, This is not one of those forced association kind of things. This is actually a place where you can sit down with a person and each person has a title, like unemployed, refugee, bipolar. And I'm sure there are plenty of other titles, right? But listening to their story you start to understand who the person is behind that label. And maybe you realize you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. So this is an innovative, brilliant, active project that exists in 50 different countries, an initiative from the Human Library. They set up a meeting space where people can sit down together and a person can share their life story with another person for 30 minutes. And it's not just, I'm going to lecture you for 30 minutes and you will listen to every word I have to say. It's it's a, it's a back and forth. It's, it's asking questions. Now, I say this based on personal experience. When you have a chance to get to know somebody at a personal level, it becomes next to impossible to see them as a caricature. And I don't care if, uh, you know, whatever the caricature is, You know, there's, you know, you see me as a hillbilly. Okay, fine. Let's put that label on and sit down and let's talk about why I might be considered a hillbilly. I mean, for other people, it might just be, you know, uh, the label they choose is gay. Okay, great. Let's sit down. Let's talk about it. The bottom line is when you talk to somebody, really talk to them and ask questions to understand, you know, who you are, what's your story. It's, it's impossible to hate somebody that you know. Caricatures are pretty easy to hate. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're encouraged so often to think of each other as caricatures. You Trumpist! You libtard! You know, when I hear people throwing those names around, I understand it feels good to call names sometimes. It makes you feel clever, you know, without having to do any of the work of actually making a case, you know, for anything. But it's unproductive. And if you really want to see people as they truly are, that's going to require some investment of time and effort to listen to them and understand them. I've talked about the experience that I had with the Better Angels organization, and I think they've actually changed their name, and I apologize uh, if, I'm, if I'm not current on this. I haven't done anything with them for a couple of years, but I attended a workshop with my friend Eric Moutsos a couple of years ago in Salt Lake City and it was a, a gathering of basically a half dozen people who identify as staunch conservatives. I don't really go for the label conservative, but, you know, if somebody were to label me, I'd probably fit better there than on the side of staunch liberals, and there were six of them as well. So a, a dozen of us sat down, and we spent the day together, and we had various workshops to encourage conversation, and we had to answer things like, um, how are you perceived by those on the other side of the aisle. How do they see you? And you know, they they there's well, you know, I'm since I'm on the conservative side, I'm probably seen as a gun toting greedy capitalist, you know, who's out there, you know, telling people what to do with their lives and making moral judgments on everybody. And you know the painful thing is there's there's a little degree of truth in these stereotypes, you know, and the liberals, well, these are a bleeding heart uh, liberals who are trying to promote, uh, you know, unwed motherhood or abortion or, you know, sexual deviancy or whatever the case may be. And they want to use the power of the state to force everybody to do what they think is right. And by the way, that goes both ways. So I'm just using this in, as an example. But these are some of the stereotypical ways we tend to think about each other. And we went through the whole day. Having conversations back and forth, I think I've mentioned before, uh, the very first thing, the, my, my first venture into this Better Angels workshop involved, they sat me right next to a, a very obviously transgender individual who turned out, by the way, to be an incredible person. And Eric Moutsos and I sat and visited with this individual throughout the day and came away with the realization we probably have more in common with her than we have with a lot of even the people on our own side that was That was quite a revelation, as in um this person, this transgender individual loves freedom, served in the military and 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 really values the ability to think for yourself and doesn't like to be forced and told you have to think this, and you know doesn't like the virtue signaling. It was very impressive, but the the most productive part of our conversation came when we were given the opportunity to actually ask people, why do you believe?" What you believe, or, or some variant of that, and the qualification for the whole day, I mean this was this was you know the prime directive from Star Trek: Do not interfere with other civilizations. I can't remember, I'm sorry, I'm not a trekkie, but uh, our prime directive was you cannot try to change someone's mind. Now think about having a conversation all day long with people who are on very differing sides of various issues but you're not allowed to try to change their mind. And it's tough when someone starts to explain themselves. You know, you find yourself kind of mentally, I'm, all, I'm already starting to structure the argument that I'm going to use to dismantle what they're saying. Nope, I just need to listen. And when it's my turn, hopefully they will listen to what I'm saying or what I'm offering in terms of an explanation. But for me, one of the coolest moments came when we were asking the question... What happened or what have you experienced that causes you to believe the way that you believe? And it was really interesting because when that question was first asked, you know what the initial response was? Nothing. I mean, people got a little bit defensive. Like, oh, like something had to happen. Like something made me do this. And initially they would say, well, nothing happened. But as we were patient and we listened for answers, guess what? Every single person had something that they had experienced you know and it could have been extremely rigid religious parents who you know clamped down on them and forced them to to do this and when they you know when they were old enough they they just rebelled against it no i hated it i hated being force fed this um i remember one guy talking about uh, um at, at his church there was a there was a an organist or or a member of their church very very wonderful lady in good standing um he learned that she was a lesbian and nobody knew this. I mean, this was, you know, this was like a deep, dark secret. Nobody knew that she was gay. And he overheard some of the other, you know, church leaders talking one day about, oh, you know, these gays and how they're going to burn in hell. And, you know, just they they were so condemning of, you know, the of the behavior of Without even realizing that they were talking, uh, they were including, you know, and who was going to burn in hell, one of the most uh, valued and loved members of their own congregation. And he talked about how that wounded him and how he felt like that's that's a terrible injustice. They don't even know that uh, this person who is looked at as a pillar in their church is gay. And yet they were, you know, very clearly, oh, yes, yeah, they're all going to hell. They're all going to burn in hell. They're all going to suffer for eternity. And that was, what, uh, that was what impacted him and his thinking. Now, I don't think that uh, we all came out of there, you know, with, uh, yeah, we changed our minds and now the conservatives are liberal and liberals conservative. That was never the point. But what I did come away with from that exchange was, you know, whatever that person, whatever label you see on them or they may label themselves or somebody else is stuck on them. There's a real person behind there. In fact, there's a person who is a valued child of God. And when you can see them more as God sees them than as, you know, your your political predilections would cause you to see them, it's a lot easier to stop dwelling on the things that you differ on and to find some common ground. I know that sounds very Pollyanna-ish. And for people who are looking for a fight, I know, go, go find a fight. But if you're serious about solving problems without bringing more anger to the situation, this is an approach that actually works.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back.
1: Once again, I'll ask you, please go to the show notes at the thebryanhideshow.com. Take a look down there at the bottom. There's a couple little links that I would ask you to consider. One of them is to subscribe to the podcast. The other one is if you find value in the content that I share here on a daily basis, I would ask you to consider becoming a supporter. And by becoming a supporter, I don't mean, you know, take out a second mortgage and write me a five-figure check every month. How about this instead? If it's something that uh, causes, you know, that creates value for you or helps you to have a better understanding of the world and your influence, maybe consider becoming, uh, you know, a dollar <clears throat> a month, five dollars a month, something like that. That option is there. The link is right there at the bottom of the show notes again at the Brian dot com. And I thank you in advance. There are people who are doing this already. It is so helpful to me. To not have to be out hustling around for side jobs and trying to, you know, trying to keep the wolf away from the door. I'm not looking to get rich. I'm just looking to speak the truth as I best understand it. And every person who finds value in this and becomes a monthly contributor helps me to accomplish that goal and focus like a laser beam on finding and disseminating the best content that I possibly can. So, again, thank you for those who are doing it. Thank you in advance for those who would consider becoming a regular monthly supporter. I talk a lot about liberty. And I know I probably become a broken record at some point because it's like, man, that's all this guy really cares about. Um, It's not all that I care about, but I do think it is one of the most important things that we can have. Because with authentic liberty, so much of the rest of our lives fall into place. When we are using our liberty properly... In other words, when we're using it to, to make decisions that actually enlarge who we are as a person, that uh, refine our character, that allow us to prosper, our options increase rather than decrease. When we use our, our liberty and our freedoms in an un, un, uh, unwise way, when we're foolish about it, that's where you end up with things like Addictions. Or, you know, you, you paint yourself into a corner with debt or things like this. But one of the reasons I, I believe that this matters is, uh, for for me, the connection came down to, I always thought liberty was a good thing. I was raised to believe, yes, it's good to be free. It's better to be free than living in the gulag. And and that's that's a pretty easy sell to make, right? Not many people would disagree. But for me the th- the thing that turned a little spark of love of freedom into a roaring fire that has dominated my every waking moment for about the last 30 years was when I realized that there is a providential component, there is a divine, heavenly aspect to liberty. And I'll just be blunt about it. I believe that it is the greatest gift that our Creator offers us. But it's one that you have to qualify for. It's not just a gimme, and people who are are qualified to handle liberty have to be capable of self-governance. They have to be capable of self-control. People that can't do that, people for whom seeking pleasure becomes the most important thing, you know, in all times and places, they aren't fit for liberty. And it's sad to me how, how just the discussion of the principles and practices of liberty has become such a, a foreign-sounding language to so many of my, my fellow Americans. I saw an article today from Judge Andrew Napolitano taking liberty for granted. And it kind of stung when I read it because I realized, ooh, he's, he's got a point here. And unfortunately, this is stuff I've been guilty of. But he starts with a quote from Thomas Jefferson. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And Judge Napolitano says, no one knows if Thomas Jefferson personally uttered these words. They've been widely attributed to him, but they don't appear in any of his writings. And if he did not literally utter them, he uttered the sentiments that they offer. And that's to remind us not to take liberty for granted. Now, Judge Napolitano says, as America returns to pre-pandemic normalcy we should think about the dangers of taking our liberty for granted. In fact, he says this column has argued frequently that personal liberty is our birthright. It's a natural right. It doesn't come from government. It comes from our humanity, which is a gift from God. As God is perfectly free, so are we. The Declaration of Independence and Constitution presume that our liberties are natural and cannot be suppressed or taken away by the government absent due process. Now, due process requires a notice of charges, a fair hearing with all constitutional protections at which the government must prove fault and the right to appeal. The Constitution doesn't grant liberty. It restrains the government from infringing upon it. Some liberties are so essential to the pursuit of happiness that the Constitution prohibits their infringement, period, Without, with or without due process, rather. And these are the liberties that we exercise every day Worship, speech, peaceable assembly, self defense, privacy, ownership and use of property, commercial transactions, travel. We voluntarily establish governments to protect our liberties. But then he asks this question Are the governments we have established morally legitimate? Well, he says they are, when they have, as Jefferson wrote in the Declaration, the consent of the governed, and when they defend our liberties. Absent consent, And the defense of liberty, government is not legitimate. Jefferson argued that government exists only to secure our rights. When it fails to protect our rights or when it destroys our property, we have the right to alter and abolish it. These principles of personal liberty in a free society were mocked and attacked by the government during the recent pandemic. And here's the sad part. Most folks went along with it. So Judge Napolitano asks, how in a land made prosperous by rugged individualism and personal sacrifice, not by government, did the people become sheep when their governors, without legal authority and in utter defiance of constitutional guarantees that they swore to uphold, signed orders that purported to deny the right to worship, work, travel, assemble peaceably, and use private property as one sees fit? Why did so many folks who believe in personal liberty accept these illegal orders, and cave to them? Why did we wear medically useless masks on our faces when we, not the government, own our faces? Why did we allow the government to close lawful businesses? Why did police and prosecutors break their oaths to defend the Constitution in deference to these gubernatorial power grabs? The same Constitution that restrains the federal and state governments from curtailing fundamental liberties also guarantees those liberties. Stated differently, the 14th Amendment, which imposes the guarantees of the Bill of Rights on the states and prohibits the states from impairing those guarantees, also enables Congress to intervene when states fail to uphold basic, fundamental, constitutionally protected rights. Did the feds come to the rescue of any of us in beleaguered states where our liberties were curtailed by executive decree? They did not. Did the courts, whose principal role is to apply and enforce the Constitution, invalidate the unlawful commands of governors or curtail the unconstitutional prosecutions of those who had the courage to defy them? They did not. Did any legislative body, state or federal, use its powers to write laws to invalidate the unlawful, unconstitutional, immoral orders of governors? They did not. And Judge Napolitano says this is a common thread running through all of this, and it leads to the dark and baleful state of voluntary servitude, a lamentable Orwellian state of affairs where people are so afraid of a new demon that they voluntarily bow to rules and commands that bankrupt them and crush their liberties in a vain hope for safety. He says the core thread running through all of this is fear, fear of sickness and death, fear of bucking the tide, fear of exercising personal liberty, fear the government might be right. Now, Napolitano says all these lockdowns happened overnight. There was no great public debate about them. There was far more acquiescence than challenge to them. The public took for granted that the governors actually had the authority they claimed they had and actually could become dictators in a crisis of fear, a crisis they created. Now that is, now that this is for the most part behind us, the question arises, why did we let this happen? And he says it happened because we take liberty for granted. We repose the Constitution for safekeeping in the hands of men and women who in the eternal conflict of personal liberty versus governmental power side with power. These are folks popularly elected, uh, popularly elected who don't care about liberty. They care about control. He says, as of this writing, there is no clear answer to the cause of COVID-19, but the cause of the pandemic was taking liberty for granted. What kind of society is ours? You can go to jail for fishing or barbering without a license, but if you're a governor, you can crush the liberty of millions and destroy the property of thousands with impunity. The next time this happens, he asks, will we cave or will we resist? One of the rights championed by Jefferson and his fellow founders was the right to secede from the government, the right to avoid a government to which one never consented. This is the core natural right for which the American Revolution was fought.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.